This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. That's what the voice of the cloud proclaims on this Transfiguration Sunday. Um, it's been over the course of time that Transfiguration Sunday came from one of these annoying Sundays that we have every year at Defiance Church, actually. We don't have it every year because we spend a year in each gospel. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all contain this scene near that confession that Chris read for us in Luke's gospel, um, intimately after that confession of who Jesus is. John doesn't have the transfiguration, so that year uh, we take off. But So last year, the Greener family band was not up here uh, performing. I, I trademarked that, so now I'm your manager. Um, the Greener family band uh, did not play um, the transfiguration song last year, but this year we brought it back. Um, and I just love it because it captures some of, you know, prose has a way of capturing some of what we mean. Uh, but song and poetry have different ways of sort of moving us to see truths. And it's, it's quite clear, I think, over time what's happened to me is the, the traditional Transfiguration Sunday, which I don't think anybody gives anymore, but as pastors we still want to joke about it, is, you know, it's easy to follow Christ while you're up here on the, does anybody know? On the mountain. But after this, you're going to have to go back to the valley and make... And so it's this warning against just focusing on the mountaintops experiences of your life rather than sort of going into the valley, which is, you know, kind of, when you think about it, not a great way to take this. It's only there as a warning. Um, this, this, this moment of beauty and capturing of what God is sort of revealing to these three disciples is only there so that you know you have to live life in the valley. Um, there's a certain depressingness to that being the point of this text of like, it's only there to tell you life is still rough. Um, uh, but I think there's something there that, that captures the beauty. The second thing that, that is often talked about, which I'll say a little bit more about today, but I always struggled with and I've thought about it for a long time, is why is it Moses and Elijah? I mean, the obvious answer is that he goes up there to meet with the one who gives the law. That's Moses, this figure who sort of leads them, the people of God, through various, um, from slavery, through the wilderness, out to the edge of the promised land in which he is not able to enter. Actually, the last time we sort of heard from Moses as a figure, he's dying on top of a mountain outside the promised land. And Moses has also his own experience on a mountain in Exodus, that this sort of um, thinness of, of beauty and transcendence that comes for him as well. His face, it glows afterwards in that revelation. Um, and Elijah becomes the stand-in for sort of the prophetic tradition, is that, you know, all the prophets took a, took a, a, a vote and Elijah got to go to this scene. Um, now, there's, there's tradition that Elijah um, doesn't die in the same way that everybody else does too. And so, um, you know, that Elijah and Moses, there are these two figures that sort of come. And it's easy to say that there is Jesus discussing with the law and the prophets, these two hinges of Israel's tradition. Um, the Torah, which is a different name for law, which would be the first five books of the Bible, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then discussing with the law, which is so, or the prophets, which are sort of this... Um, interpretive way of looking at Torah, if particularly correcting abuses of Torah is what a lot of the prophetic tradition does. It's oftentimes, I think we read it as sort of like pointing to the truth of Torah, but I think it's more correct to say that when you see the prophets emerging in Israel's scene, they're pointing to the abuses of Torah. So Moses and Elijah already have a relationship. 
um, in that way, is that they're commenting on that. Jesus, as he's come, comes as a Moses-like figure in so many ways, but also as a prophetic figure, too. His opening sermon in Luke's Gospel is, The Spirit is Lord is upon me, um, and I have these things to proclaim. He comes as a prophetic figure. In Matthew's Gospel, you see him as a Moses figure even more, in that he delivers the Sermon on the Mount from a mount, uh, which is the same way that Moses sort of gives the law to the people from a mount. In Luke, that's taken up into the Sermon of the Plain. But over time, as, as one of these passages that the church, um, in theory, returns to every year, except for us because we do a year in John, um, the depth and beauty and the point, if you could say that, of something like a picture like this, um, the point of it, um, started to become more clear to me, so much so that it's become one of my favorite Sundays um, to think about, to research about, to, to sort of turn over in my mind. And one of the reasons for that is when we think of that synoptic tradition, which is the, the three similar Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, there's these moments that I don't think we instinctively as Christians know Jesus for well enough. For instance, in each of those, there is a baptism near the front of the Gospels. You know, we all know the Christmas story. That's only Luke. But those three Gospels have this baptism story in which Jesus hears a voice the same way that he does in the Mount of Transfiguration, minus the listen to him. This is my son whom I've chosen um, and whom I am well pleased. That this voice appears in the baptism story instantly after the baptism story. Another story that appears in all three of those Gospels is Jesus is driven out into the wilderness. We'll talk about that one next week, um, going back to the beginning of, of the gospel, but Jesus is brought to the wilderness and where he is tempted by Satan. So there's this disclosure of his identity in the baptism, and then he's brought out to this place of testing. In, in Mark's gospel, it says the Spirit casts him out to the desert. Um, and so he has this sort of narrative structure in those two scenes. The next is the scenes in which we read today is this scene in which Peter is finally one who confesses who Christ is. And then Jesus talks in a different way about the struggle in which we're invited into, which I think is an important part to keep in mind here, is that Christianity invites us into struggle with the way that the world is. Jesus says, if anybody wants to come after me, they must pick up their cross in Luke's gospel daily, which means it becomes this sort of a way of life. And then instantly after sort of that final confession of who Jesus is, he brings the three disciples, um, uh, Peter, John, and James, up to the mountain for this picture of beauty, this picture of transfiguration. And again, that voice, which we heard originally at the baptism scene, appears again. Now, one of the things, um, the last scene that sort of is tightest in all three or all four of those Gospels is that of cross and resurrection. And I think it's for the believer to hear the resurrection is God's final vindication that this is my son. So as we sang in a beautiful name, death could not hold him in that instance, that this is the final revelation of that voice again. And so these things, if you, I can speak for myself, growing up in the church and learning the stories of Jesus, these Narratives that are important enough that they take up um, 
particular scenes in each three of these Gospels were not really emphasized enough as much in my upbringing. Um, I don't know if that's true for the rest of you, but it seemed like, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, the parables, I mean, the things that are fun to teach kids, um, you know, Noah every year because it's cute, despite the fact that it's destruction of everything. I'll talk about that. Um, uh, Rosie had a book where it showed like the elephant, Mr. and Mrs. Elephant getting ready to go on the uh, ark. And I would always say to her when she was little, I was like, yes, Rosie, those are the only two elephants that survive. Um, which means I'm a bad father. Um, but the bigger point is, is that we, we, we have these things that we sort of come to over and over again, but we miss, I think, often these particular scenes because they disclose the identity of who Jesus is. Which I think is interesting is that we, we like the morals, we like the ethics, we like the teachings, um, we like the parables, but these particular scenes in which the identity of this one is confirmed tend to fall by the wayside. And there's something about knowing the identity that I think is important. Obviously, it was important enough for Matthew, Mark, and Luke to keep coming up in all three of those narratives. It's one of their major similarities as they get tightest around those scenes. Um, and so what does it mean for us to hear about the identity of who Christ is? Not just the teachings, not just the miracles, not just the feedings, but the identity of this one as he comes amongst us. Um, and so what's sort of happened in Luke's gospel so far, um, this is actually where it's heading, is this place is, uh, in chapter 9, verse 51 says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is after the scenes in which we read today, but close. There's two other scenes that I, I think are related. But there's this turn in this gospel. There's a turn in all three gospels in which, and this is where this epiphany time that Emily spoke about in the introduction of the service, the epiphany time in which we see Christ performing miracles, healing and teaching, is this time in which we sort of take up who Christ is with us. Um, Eugene Peterson says this is the time in which Jesus hangs out with his buddies, eats meals, and goes on boat trips with his friends. Is it because he does go on boat trips with his friends in this half? Um, uh, and yet, after the confession, the gospel turns towards him taking his path to Jerusalem to his suffering. It's almost like once you finally know who this one is, once one human actor, which is Peter at this point, is able to confess, you are God's Messiah, two things become clear. First, or three things probably. First is that Jesus then says, okay. Now it's time for me to suffer, which is not a teaching he gave before that moment. Once Peter confesses that this, you are the chosen one of God, Jesus instantly goes to this, and now it is time for me to suffer. The Son of Man will suffer in these ways. Second, he invites the disciples into that struggle and suffer. For it is you to pick up your cross and follow me deny yourself in these ways, and to join in this struggle. And third, this comes this revelation of beauty and glory in the transfiguration that raises things up to a whole new level. So much so that in the last, uh, in the early part from 1900 to 1970, New Testament scholars were obsessed and like trying to figure out where the Jesus of narrative was historically most reliable, that so many of them decided, well, this is a resurrection scene that somehow got misplaced into the um, gospel narrative, which is, 
I think when you think about this time period, just hysterical to think about. <laughs> like three guys got it wrong, misplaced it the whole time, and nobody corrected it and put it back where it belonged. Um, but there is the sense in which the disciples are invited to see and glimpse the glory of who Jesus is. And so what has happened is um, last Sunday we talked about the question of John back in chapter 7. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? There Jesus answers with, go and tell John what you've seen. The blind receive sight, the sick are healed, and the good news is preached to the poor. There's a couple other things in there. But he says, he doesn't answer the question of who he is, but he says, look at what I've done and report that. That would be the revelation of who I am. Earlier in chapter 9, interesting, now Herod, the Tretriarch, heard about all what was going on. He was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and others that a prophet of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Uh, who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Um, there's a sense in which even Herod, this political ruler of the time, is asking the same question that John was. Who is this one? Who is the one that is teaching and performing these miracles on the edge of Israel? So much so that then Jesus, in the next scene, as he is praying, says to Peter, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Which seems to be the question that everybody is asking up until this point, is who is this one who has come amongst us? First, Actually, Jesus says to them, who do the crowds say that I am, as Chris read? And they say, some say John the Baptist, which we heard in the Herod scene. Some say Elijah, the Herod scene. And still others that one of the prophets has come back to life. It's as if Peter's repeating what Herod was told. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, God's Messiah, God's chosen one. And this is the moment in which the gospel begins to turn. Jesus warned them strictly not to tell anyone about this, which is one of those mysteries that comes in the gospel. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, if you're familiar with the other gospels, Peter says, Not so, um, in which Jesus gives him the rebuke, Get behind me, Satan which is to say that the path that Jesus is called to walk from his um, entering into the struggle in the desert is one with contesting with the powers of the world through the powers of the cross. And to take another path is to follow the temptations that Satan offered him. Turn these breads to stone. Um, uh, throw yourself off this building, surely God will save you. Um, kneel to me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. There's a sense in which Jesus is, Peter is tempted to pull Jesus off the same path that he's commended to go on. Similar to us, I think, in lots of ways. Um, because what he says next in Luke's gospel is, Then he said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. He invites them into the struggle this daily as a way of life. You must pick up your cross daily and follow me. It's a hard teaching. Because in the other Gospels, particularly, the daily isn't there. So it's like, you know, 
uh, martyrdom is that option there. There's a great line in one of the Flannery O'Connor stories where the young girl's sitting there, and she said, I don't have it within me to be a saint, which would be picking up your cross daily and following. She says, but I might be a martyr if they killed me real fast. Um, uh, no struggle there. If they did it fast, I could be a martyr. But that daily picking up my cross to become a saint, no, I don't have that within me. And yet that is Christ's call here, is to daily pick up our cross and follow him. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will save it. It's temptation to, to surrender in some ways. Whoever wants to guard everything that they have will lose it. I think we think about the ego a lot today, but this is definitely, if, you were, if Jesus were a modern person, is a call to the death of the ego. Whoever wants to save all that they are will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. This dispossession of the self he goes after materialism a little bit next, too. What good is it that somebody would gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very life? What is it to gain all that there is but to lose or forfeit their very life? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. That if your goal is to save your life in this world, to gain the whole world, such that it is clear that you're not losing your life for his sake, everything becomes lost. I was listening to an interview with the author Stephen Pressfield this week, and he was saying to the, it was about writing, which was weird that this came up, although Stephen Pressfield has sort of this mystic way and sort of he thinks about writing, but he was saying that I'm one of the people who believes that we are material beings in a, uh, in a spiritual world. When the veil is lifted and we see the spiritual world, all things become possible for us in a different way. If all of life is contained within the visible, Jesus is surely wrong here. It would make more sense to save your life within this era than it would to save it for the next it would make more sense to work to gain the whole world because this is all that there is. But what if there is something else? First, in this passage, there is a sense in which when the Son of Man comes in his glory, something greater will be revealed with his angels. So it is for the Christian, I think, to be challenged to believe and to lean into that which is invisible at times. Second truth that I think is here that's particularly tempting for us in the modern world, um, uh, there's a thinker um, who asks, that is, the kingdom of heaven is worth every price. The kingdom of justice and equity and fairness and all these things is worth every price, but who pays? And it's the answer of the Judeo-Christian tradition, that it's the individual who pays. Pick up your cross daily. 
the, it's the answer of the 21st century American electoral system is everybody pays except for me. Um, I vote for those sort of laws. Um, and then there's this, this way of sort of scapegoating in such a way that somebody else is the reason for reality coming not to the eternal fruition that it has, but it's not me. Jesus closes the door to those options. It is for you to pick up your cross daily and follow him. The kingdom of heaven is worth every price, but the person who pays isn't some external enemy who you hope to extinguish, but the continual picking up of the cross yourself. Which brings us to the transfiguration scene. Sorry, that was a long intro, but I think that these things, this being invited into struggle is the way in which we see the beauty. Martin Luther has this way of talking about there's theologies of glory and theologies of the cross. In his opinion, uh, theologies of glory are those in which we trust in ourselves and build our own worlds and sort of create these false ways. But there's theologies of the cross which draw us into the depths of what is. There's no denial in it. But in this scene, too, if you just follow the transfiguration, which I think there are Christians who'd like to, but with no, you must pick up your cross daily and follow me, we say, we want the beauty of God transfixed before us. We want heaven, but we don't want to sacrifice or live in the struggle to do it. We don't want to bring that into our lives. But what happens in the transfiguration is this open and up of beauty and meaning that's so far beyond us. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples was with, uh, went back, Jesus prays in Luke's gospel, funny enough, at the baptism, which I talked about before as his fame is growing, when he chooses the twelves, when he asks Peter, who do they say that I am, and the transfiguration, when he teaches the disciples to pray in Gethsemane. Luke has this way of saying that prayer sort of for Jesus even has this revealing aspect to it. Um, if you track where Jesus prays in the Gospels, it's sort of at these pinnacle scenes. So much so that when we get to this one, um, I was behind. I don't have my back TV today, sorry. Uh, after, or Brian said the back TV is displaying downstairs, so if you'd like to go down for Kids Church, you can get the same thing down. Um, uh, after eight days, uh, Jesus said this, he took Peter and John and James with him and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the prayer shows up again. The appearance of his face changed and his clothes became bright as flashing of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his disciple was bringing about the fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but they became fully awake when they saw the, his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to the master, said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Um, Jesus, after he tells the disciples that some of you will see the kingdom, takes them to this place in which they see this kingdom before them and this beauty and sort of this transfiguration, um, this spiritual world, as we talked about, being made manifest in some way. One of Thomas Aquinas's way of, of interpreting this is that for the disciples to have heard, they must pick up their cross daily and follow. It's important that they're given a glimpse of where they are going. They're given a glimpse into what will be revealed in the fullness of time. In light, 
in the ancient, I mean, we, we have a cheap relationship to light. We get a bill every month for it, but other than that, there's no cost that goes into light. Although Lee could tell us more about the cost that goes into lighting as he works as a lineman for Holy Cross. Yeah, yeah so thank you, Lee. Um, uh, but we have this cheap relationship to light. But to say that Jesus is transfixed in light, if you notice the pictures of saints or holy people, there's always sort of light around them that they're radiating into the world of darkness, some sort of path and way for us to be. For Jesus to be transformed into glorious light is to reveal in some sense that resurrected state that we will have in the fullness of time. It's this picture of beauty and, and sort of being overwhelmed with that. And it opens up for us. And so Aquinas, he thinks that this is one way of sort of making the path plain for us where we're going. To just be sold, you pick up your cross, you follow me, and you die, um, is to cut short what God is going to do in the transformation of all things. Which brings us to the word that he uses for departure here. Moses and Elijah appearing in glory, spending talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure. Um, I don't know if anybody has a translation where the word for this is exodus in, in the Greek. Is they spoke about his exodus which is this loaded language saying that sort of Jesus is, one, Exodus is one way of talking about a departure, I'm going to die. Um, but Exodus, as it is rich in the Jewish memory, is this way of talking about this leaving for a new land and a new creation. So it is Christ who brings about sort of in that Moses rescued the people from slavery to Pharaoh. Jesus rescues the people from this slavery to sin and death and brings them out into new creation and new life. It's the exodus at which they're talking about. Peter and his companions became, were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. There's a way in which, um, one of the ways somebody translated that is sort of as, as if they were in this almost like death-like state, they're able to see sort of the glory that awaits them. It's this glimpse sort of like as they're falling asleep in this way. And as the men were leaving, Peter said to them, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. There's one, a reference to the, the festival of booths perhaps here, this idea of that they build shelters and sort of um, wait um, but there's this another way in which he's sort of saying, let's capture this glory, which is what the temple did. What he's missing is that, that while Moses and Elijah might need boosts, Jesus does not. Jesus is the Holy One. Him in himself is the booth in which God is residing in at this moment. Which is why it's important that, that at this moment the... the a cloud appears and covers them, and they're afraid to enter the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When this voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The law and the prophets are in some sense left, and we're left with this one who is Jesus. And it's important, the word at the end here that's added that isn't at the Baptist to listen to him. Jesus is the one who builds upon what Moses and Elijah has done. But if we find ourselves transfixed with the glory that he's inviting us into, what we see is although they might talk with him, when the cloud comes, they disappear, and there is one left. 
And it is this one who is proclaimed, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And so um, the last thing uh, I want to read is this quote from the back of the bulletin, or part of it's on the back of the bulletin from David Bentley Hart, that I think names some of the beauty in which we're invited into. Um, the transfiguration is this glimpse of holiness beyond us um, that enlightens our way and path, opens a new way for us, and shows us this way of being that as we pick up our cross daily, enter into this new way of life that we're awaiting something beyond us, something greater. In the icon of the transfiguration upon the Mount of Tabor, the entire logic of Christian theology, devotion, worship, mysticism is uniquely concentrated. As an object of, uh, as an object of contemplation, the transfiguration image compromises the whole story of creation, incarnation, and salvation in a particular way with a fixed harmony of elements and with a singular intensity. It allows in one fixed instant of visionary clarity to see and reflect upon the entire mystery of the God-man and the divinization of humanity in him. This icon offers, also offers us a glimpse of that eschatological, eschatological, the end times, last time, horizon of salvation. For the same light that the three disciples were permitted to see break forth from the body of Christ will, in the fullness of time, enter into and transform all of creation with the glory that the Son had with the Father before the world began. And the whole of creation awaits and groans of longing and travail. The fullness of time, this transformation will happen to all of creation. Then, to us, an image favored by a host of orthodox spiritual writers, the entire universe will be like the burning bush seen by Moses, radiant with fire of God's holiness, but not consumed. And the Christian who prayerfully turns his gaze to the transfiguration and holds it there, should see himself taken up into the incarnate God and refashioned after the ancient beauty of the divine image. I'm a preacher. I shared a lot of words about this cost of discipleship and the transfiguration. But I think this temptation or this offer to turn our gaze to that to take this moment in in prayer offers us a chance to see what the whole world will be someday. And if but we can do that, and see, I love Moses when he's in the desert, he sees a bush that's on fire, but it does not burn. If we do that, we can see creation as this thing which is permanent and yet inflamed with beauty and some um, in, the, in the Christian sense, purging as well. And yet the permanence of it remains. Um, and if we but do that and transfix ourselves to the beauty, that we would find ourselves drawn into that. And then, pick up your cross daily and follow me, becomes more of a possibility than we could have imagined without it. Without it, 
It's just moral instruction. Pick up your cross, forsake these things, this, that, and the other. But paired with the transfiguration, and wisely the gospel writers and the narrative of Jesus do this for us, it tells us there's, there's a vision in the glimpse of the world beyond that pulls back the curtain, shows us what's really true and what's coming so that we can live in the world that we have today with possibilities that were previously not possible for us. Pick up your cross and follow me daily. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Let us pray. Holy Father, we have been instructed by your Son to first to pick up our cross daily and follow you as we proclaim that you are the Messiah, the one who is to come from you. And so too we're invited to contend with reality the same way that your Son did. Not at the sacrifice of others, but at the sacrifice of ourselves to find this path to lose our soul for your sake so that we might save it, to not gain the whole world, but to gain in you. And so, in your wisdom, you've provided a glimpse into that beauty which awaits us, that transfiguration on the mountain in which things are set ablaze and a dazzling light comes before us, and it provokes a path, a way, and a beauty for us in which we are going to follow you. God, in our prayers, may you open our eyes and our lives to behold that transformation so that we may live holy lives offered in sacrifice to you in our daily walk. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.